Right, let's get started this morning. First uh, Corinthians 15, First Corinthians 15. All right. First Corinthians 15, we, uh, we were kind of in the middle of the chapter here in the passage. I, we're going to start doing, uh, we're going to start looking at First Corinthians to try and finish up the book. That way we can move on to something else. I don't want to leave First Corinthians undone. Uh, but what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go back to the beginning of the chapter. Uh, we looked for the last two Sundays, I believe, at 1 Corinthians uh, 8, 9, and 10. And so this morning we'll start back at 1 Corinthians 15 at the beginning of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is uh, really a, a big, big chapter. And it's a, it's a, it's a good chapter. So we'll, we'll start there. All right, let's pray this morning. Father... We do thank you, Lord, for letting us be here today. God, pray that you'd watch out over us and help us. God, give us leadership. God, Lord, give us understanding. Help these that have come this morning. God, Lord, pray you help them to understand. Help me to be clear. But, Lord, we pray, God, Lord, that you would guide us. Lord, we pray that you'd lead us. God, we recognize, Lord, that we're ignorant, God, and uh, incapable, Lord, of trying to understand these things, God, without your aid, God, without your help, your direction. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd undertake for us, God, in your mercy this morning for us. God, pray that you'd forgive me, God, of my sins. Lord, pray that you'd wash us clean. And God, help us, Lord, to be ready, God, and capable, Lord, to understand these things. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, look in verse 1. The Bible said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a good way to be what you are, by the grace of God. Uh, I don't recommend being self-insistent. But who you are, what you are, be that way by the grace of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. So we're going to stop reading right there. That's about where the first section of the, of the chapter stops. So let me, as we get started here in 1 Corinthians 15 for the second time, and that's okay, it doesn't bother me too bad, uh, but let me give you just a brief outline. You go through the uh, 1 Corinthians let me just give you a brief outline of how the chapter rolls. First of all, let me say this. The whole chapter deals with resurrection 
and not just resurrection, but it deals with a particular resurrection. It deals with the resurrection. We'll get, we'll get uh, more specific about that as we go on. But let me, just as a general rule, in general, the whole chapter deals with the resurrection. And so let me break the chapter up in a couple of different sections and just kind of give you this brief outline. If you're taking some notes, maybe you want to write this down. But here you go. Verse 1 to 11 really deals with the gospel and its effect on Paul. It deals with the gospel and the effect on Paul. Uh, we'll get into it a little bit more possibly today. But the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll make some comments about that a little bit later. And the resurrection is an important part of the gospel. Uh, we've preached about that in the past, but uh, without the resurrection, the gospel uh, is really, in effect, null and void. Now, you go into a Catholic church and you see Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. You know, we, we have crosses in Baptist churches and in a lot of Protestant churches, there are crosses. On our steeple, there's a cross. And there's not anything wrong with that, but one of the things you notice between our crosses and a Catholic church's crosses is that Jesus is not on our crosses. And there's a reason for that because he's not a dead savior. He's a living savior. He's sitting on the right hand of the throne of God this morning. And so it's a big part. It's a big, uh, it's a big deal for lack of a better way of saying it. But anyways, verse one through 11 is the gospel and its effect on Paul. And then Verse 12, starting in verse 12 and going down to about verse 19, uh, Paul deals with the fact that there is a resurrection. There is a resurrection. And there's proof of that. You say, how's there proof of that? The fact that Jesus Christ resurrected. And that, that is taken right from the text. We'll deal with that uh, probably not today. But verse 20 through 22, Paul goes through and he begins to change uh, his subject, and he begins to talk about how Christ's resurrection is able to be participated in by you, by me, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. You trust Christ as your Savior, you're saved. That resurrection is now able to be participated in. And then verse 23, starting in verse 23, going to about verse 34. When you start in verse 23 and get down to about verse 29 to verse 34, I take I take verse 23 to 34 and make it all the same section, but starting in about verse 29, Paul's, uh, the way that he begins to describe things, he's really beginning to merge and change into the next subject of the passage. But about verse 23 to around verse 34, he begins to deal with where the resurrection, future, we'll talk about that, where that deals, where it sits in relation to the millennial reign of Christ, which is a big deal. That's a very interesting thing. We'll get to that. And then verse 35 to, verse, to about verse 57, 58, Paul begins to deal with the nature of the resurrected body, which will be very fun when we get there. I, I think that'll be very interesting to you. So I don't think you'll want to miss that. Uh, when you uh, partake, which you have partake, you've already partaken of Christ's resurrection, but there's a day where it'll be fully realized in your body. And when that takes place, you're going to have a glorified body, not just something that is just dreamed out of thin air. Your body's going to be just like the Lord Jesus Christ, which is going to be, can I just say it's going to be fun? 
It's, it's going to be wild, man. So uh, you think all the aches and pains has got you down now. Just wait. Just wait. It's going to be, it's going to be a great time. Hey, man, we can shout about that now. All right, so go back to verse 1. Uh, I said the, the theme of the chapter, and it's really a disquisition in itself. It concerns, it concerns our resurrection. It deals with the, res- the resurrection in total, but it really it concentrates itself on our resurrection, our participation in Christ's resurrection. And so there's a lot of information involved with that, but that's the end in view. Now, let me say this. That's notable for two reasons. It's notable for two reasons. First of all, it's notable in the fact that he's writing to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth is a bad church. It's not a good church. And when I say it's a bad church, I'm not saying that it's not saved. I'm not saying that the people down there are not saved. But you, we've gone through, it's taken us a long time, but we've gone through 1 Corinthians. And you see all of the stuff that Paul has had to deal with down at the church at Corinth. And then when he comes towards the close of the book, now he's talking about the resurrection. And he's talking about that as something that's going to happen to the people at Corinth just the same way that it's going to happen to the people at Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica. It's going to happen to all of those quote-unquote wonderful people, but it's also going to happen to the folks at Corinth. And you say, well, why do you point that out? Well, I point that out because it should be a great source of comfort to you. You look at your own life and say, well, I'm not exactly everything that I should be as a Christian. Okay, we'll work on that, but don't lose sight of the fact that one day something God is going to do with you what he purposed to do. Uh, I wasn't really going to look at a whole lot, but I feel like a little bit of scripture would be uh, applicable here. Hold your place there in 1 Corinthians 15 and look in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and look in verse 9. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, Paul says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. So, uh, not trying to read the whole chapter of Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, but just to abbreviate it, Paul said when the Lord saved you, God had a purpose in mind. God didn't just save you because uh, he wanted to get you out of hell. And that may have been the reason that you got saved, but God had a purpose for you. God has a purpose for you now, but not just now. God's got a purpose for you out in the future. Uh, hold your place still in 1 Corinthians 15 and look in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and look in verse 29, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The Bible says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. So your destination is predetermined. And when you think of a destination, usually you think of, you know, Milwaukee or why Milwaukee? I don't know why that came to mind. Jacksonville, Atlanta. God help you if you go into Atlanta. But you think of destination. It's a physical place. Well, this destination is not necessarily a physical place. It's a state of being. He said, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed 
to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, we're going to cover that a little bit more in detail in, in the future, but let me just say it in summary right now. When the Lord saved you, God had in mind when he saved you to make you just like Jesus Christ. And he's going to do that. He's going to do that. He is going to do that. You say, Brother Nathan, I'm backslid right now. He's going to do it anyway. One day, listen, you're sitting in here this morning. I'm not saying this necessarily to uh, be a reproof to you, although it may be a reproof to you. And I'm not trying to alleviate that, but I'm trying to say it as a, as a source of comfort. You say, well, Brother Nathan, my life is not as right as it should be this morning. Well, listen, let me tell you this. According to the scripture, one day you will be fully right with God. God, God, is going, God is going to take care of that for you. This salvation that we got a hold of, that God graciously allowed us to be partakers in, by, by his mercy through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, uh, God provided everything. You, you provide nothing for yourself. The, let, let me put it like this. Let me back up and, and qualify that statement right there. The only thing that you provide for yourself in regards to this new life that you're living is the rewards that you get at the judgment seat of Christ. That's all up to you. Uh, the Lord provides none of that. That's up to you. But that has nothing to do with your salvation. Salvation, matters of salvation, that is entirely provided for in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You backslid this morning if you are. Okay, God's going to take care of that for you one day. I recommend you get, get it taken care of today. But one day, God's going to take care of it all. So that should be a great source of comfort to you. Look in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6. And so if you, by virtue of trust in Christ as your Savior, if you've participated in Christ's death, which you have, which is what we're getting ready to look at here in Romans chapter 6, then what that means is that at some point in the future, you're going to participate in his resurrection. Look here in Romans chapter 6 and look in verse 5. Look at what it says. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. Now, he says, if, now let me back up for just a second and go back to verse 3. Look at what he says, Romans 6 verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now, I, I take it for granted that we all understand the word baptism does not always deal with being immersed in water. First Peter uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 or 4, I don't remember right off the top of my head, talks about, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt, they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were baptized. Which one of them got wet? None of them. God parted the water. So just baptism, just throw that out there right quick. Baptism does not always deal with getting wet, what it does deal with is being put in something. When we baptize you down at the river, we put you in something. And we don't leave you there. We pull you up, but we put you in something. Well, when you got baptized, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, you're baptized 
into Jesus Christ. You're put in Jesus Christ. Well, when you get put into Jesus Christ, according to Romans 6, verse 3, you're put into his death. Now, he said, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. It's a true statement. Don't you know, is what Paul says, verse 4. Therefore, we're, back, we're buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So when we baptize folks, we put them down under the water and we bring them up. And what that is, is that's a picture of the new life that you have in Jesus Christ. Paul goes through and he kind of describes that in Romans chapter 6. He died to sin, died to law, died to the law. And so now when you come up, you come up the same way that Jesus Christ came up by the glory of the Father so that you can walk in newness of life. I think you can understand that. Some preachers, when they put people under the water, they say, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. You've probably heard a preacher do that. I don't do that because I can't multitask very well. God only knows what I'll say if I try to do that. So I just concentrate on getting them down and getting them back up. I can say that for you if you want to be baptized that way, but there's no guarantee that you'll come up. I'll be concentrating on, what, what do I say next? Uh, so we, we'll just leave that off and concentrate on getting you back up. But you see that in the text. Now watch what he says in the next verse. He changes a little. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, true statement, right? You've been planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, I thought we are right now in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, sort of, you are on the inside. But there's none of you right now looking at this morning that you look like you got the same kind of body that Christ had when he resurrected from the dead. Anybody able to just magically appear out of thin air? Christ did. Well, you don't have that ability yet, and it's because you don't have your glorified body. But there's coming a day. That's what he's saying. Look back in Romans chapter 5 and look in verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank God. Verse 9, much more then, being now, justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So that's a future salvation. When you get saved, we'll go into this into more detail. We'll actually look at the passages that's found in Romans chapter 8. But when you get saved, you get, in you get all of the salvation that you're ever going to get, but it's not fully realized yet. Not all of you has been has experienced that salvation that's been purchased for you. This is a very, very interesting and very important thing for you to understand. How many of you have ever heard that Jesus Christ bought healing in the atonement? How many have ever heard that? Okay, well, it's true, he did. Let me go a little bit further and explain what I mean. Somebody will take you down to the front of the church and say, well, this preacher will lay his hands on you and heal you. Benny Hinn, uh, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagin, 
followers of that kind of stuff. Charismatics, Pentecostals, Church of God, all that kind of stuff. Very, very common thing around in this area. Well, when you start arguing with them, you know, and saying, well, no, you got that wrong. One of the things they'll say is, well, Jesus Christ purchased healing in the atonement, which is true. Isaiah 53 says, he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. It, there, there's another verse in there. I was trying to quote it, but it's not coming to mind. But it talks about, oh, it says, by his stripes, we are he did. He did buy our physical healing in the atonement. But that is not realized yet. You say, when will it be realized? This salvation that he's talking about in Romans chapter 5. Now, I'm not, I'm not arguing about the fact that Christ can heal you today. I, I'm not arguing about the fact, I'm not telling you that it's incorrect for somebody to come forward in a church according to James chapter 5. Some guys will say that, you know, you shouldn't do that because James is not written to the church. Well, uh, that's a different subject for a different time. But all I'm going to say is then if that's the case, you've got to throw out all of James. And James chapter 1 says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally. You want to throw that out? Okay, well, I'm not going to throw James 1 out, so I'm not going to throw James 5 out either. James 5 says you can bring folks forward, anoint them with oil, Lay hands on them, confess your faults one to another, not your sins, confess your faults one to another, that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That stuff works, but it's not the same healing that you're going to get when you get your glorified body, Romans chapter 8, and what we're looking at right now, Romans chapter 5. Much more than, verse 9, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. Through him. Now that term wrath deals with some matters of the tribulation, but we're not going to get into that this morning. Verse 10, now watch what he says. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to, to, to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So the moment that you trust Christ as your Savior, you get salvation. It's a package deal. You get it all the moment that you trust Christ as your Savior, but that package is not entirely unpacked, if you will. It's not all let loose until the moment that you're glorified, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans chapter 8. And so that's what we'll be looking at. All of that to say, this should be a great source of comfort to you. Brother Nathan, I'm backslidden. Well, one day you'll be right. Praise the Lord. So that's one of the reasons that it should, that you should take note of 1 Corinthians being in, or 1 Corinthians 15 being in 1 Corinthians. And then also, uh, the other reason that it's important to note is that it should serve as an incentive to receive all of the instruction that Paul has given heretofore. 1 Corinthians uh, 1 two, three, all the way down to 1 Corinthians 14. Paul has really reamed out the church down at Corinth. He'd really given them the what for, and rightfully so. They had a lot of problems. And then the punctuating mark of 1 Corinthians 15, he's still got one more chapter. But the thing that he deals with at the end is this matter of the resurrection. Why put that at the end? It's a valid question. 
And the answer to that is because this should serve as the motivation for you to pay attention to everything that he said before. Look in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul goes through talking about all this stuff that relates to the resurrection, and then he closes the chapter with this statement. Therefore, based on everything that I've said before in this chapter, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, that's based on knowing where you're going. The, the, the incentive to be faithful to the Lord in this life is knowing what's going to happen to you in the future. Not in my notes, but take your Bible, hold your place there in 1 Corinthians and look with me in the book of John. I'll, I have to find it right quick, but get to the book of John, roughly where it's at. But let me show you John chapter 13, John chapter 13. This is, a, this is a very wild passage to me. Look in John 13 and look in verse 1. The Bible says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So you, you know where we're at. This is right before they're in the room where they're getting ready to observe the Passover. And it's not going to be very long before Jesus Christ is going to Calvary. Uh, within just a couple of hours, Christ is getting ready to be tried falsely and he's going to Calvary. Right? That's where we're at. Now watch what the next verse says. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands and that he was come from God, and he went to God. Verse 4, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girt himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, you understand what this is about. This is where Christ washes the feet of his disciples. And then he goes on later, and the moral that you're supposed to take away from this, Christ explains it. He says, you call me your master. You call me your Lord. And he said, you're right. I am. He said, but if I've done this as your master and Lord, then this is what you should be doing to one another. Not physically doing a foot washing service. Let me just make that clear. You say, well, Brother Nathan, we want to have a foot washing service. Do it at home. Amen. Guys at the prison wanted to do that in the, in the, in the thing in there. I just told him, I said, no. I said, you'll have to get the head chaplain to approve it, but I am not approving that. That's nasty. Go down to the little nail place down here. And get you a little pedicure. Help yourself. I'd like to see some of you fellas go down there and do that. No, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't want to see that. Anyways, back to this. You understand, the whole idea is service. I'm supposed to serve you because we're Christians. We're brothers. We're disciples of the Lord. I serve you. You serve me. That's the, that's the idea. Christ said, I'm, I'm your Lord and Master. I've set the example. The, the, the motive, the way that Christ was able to do that 
He lays it out in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know why people falter and failure in the why they falter and fail in the Christian life? It's because of two things. They don't know two things. They don't know where they came from. They forgot or they just don't know. Or they don't know or forgot where they're going. If you can keep those two things in view as a Christian, that will help you to not get bitter. That will help you not to get proud. It'll help you not to get proud. You know why we don't serve one another? Because we think that we're better than serving one another. Well, this guy don't deserve my service. Well, Christ came and died for your sins in a sense. In a sense, he was serving you. Now, he's serving his father. There's no doubt about that. I don't want to take away from that. But wasn't salvation from your sin and salvation from it, wasn't that a great service for you? You know how that was accomplished? By Jesus Christ keeping in his mind where he came from and where he was going. Hey, listen, watch this. <clears throat> Lord's Supper, which we need to do. We haven't done that in quite some time, too long. I, I'm horrible at remembering stuff like that, but we're going to do that here within the next couple of weeks, Lord willing. When you observe the Lord's Supper, Paul makes this statement. He said, he said, for in doing these things, he said, ye do show the Lord's death past. Ye do show the Lord's death till he come. That observance of the Lord's Supper points in two directions. What did take place and what's going to take place. It points in two directions. The reason that Christians are so messed up in their minds today, one of the reasons is because they've been so distracted from where they came from and where they're going. Some of it's because they've never, never been taught. But some of it's because they've been taught, but it's not been emphasized. Some of it's because it's been taught and emphasized, but they're interested in all kinds of other stuff. And all I'm telling you this morning is if you're going to be a good Christian, you're going to have to keep both of those things in mind. You do show the Lord's death till he come. Hey, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, hey, I've, to I've told you what's going to happen to you in the future. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, last verse of the chapter. Therefore, based on these things, therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I know. I know this because I know I deal with it personally. And there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. If it deals with me, I guarantee it deals with every person. I'm nothing special. I'm just like you. The thing that gets folks to where they look at Christian service and say, what's the point? Right? You get to a place where you say, what, what's the point? Of this? Why go to church? Why read my Bible? I'm not really getting anything out of it. The time you open your Bible, you're not opening your Bible and just the honey dripping from the trees. It could be that way, but it's not that way every time. So you sit there and you say, what's the point? Get down and pray, and you don't really see anything take place. What's the point? Well, what, what's happened? Listen, I'm just telling you, what's happened is you've lost touch with what's going to take place in the future. 
And what you've got to do as a Christian is you've got to get back in touch with that. If you falter in this morning, if you're struggling to really find motivation, struggling to find purpose, you've got to get back in touch with what's to come. I don't feel like I can emphasize that enough. Christians are, are in touch with what's going on now, and you should not be out of touch with what's going on now. But that is not the thing that governs you as a Christian. As a Christian. As a Christian. Maybe as a daddy, maybe as an employee, maybe as whatever other station you have in life, as a mother, I don't want to leave the ladies out, whatever station you have in life, maybe those things are governed by what's going on now. But as a Christian, the thing that governs your Christian service, the thing that provides the motivation, I should say, in your Christian life is Calvary and what's coming in the future. Got to hold on to both of those things. What's coming, what, what took place in the past, Calvary, is a great blessing. What's going to take place to you in the future, according to 1 Corinthians 15, it's a great blessing. You got to keep both of those things in view. Uh, let me show you this a little bit more. Boy, we're not doing very well in getting through this, all this material. Look in Philippians chapter 3. Let me show you some passages that kind of uh, paint the same picture. Philippians 3. Philippians 3, and look in verse 17. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Now, verse 18 and 19 of Philippians 3 is a parenthetical statement. So I'm going to skip verse 18 and 19 and go from 17 to 20. I'm not trying to drop those verses out, but it, 18 and 19 is a thought in the middle of a thought. And so just to keep you straight, I want to read it first, 17, straight to 20. Watch what he says. Verse 17, Philippians 3, 17. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For, verse 20, our conversation is in heaven from whence also ye look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Verse 17, it's an admonition. Hey, be followers together of me. Mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Follow us. Hey, take us for a pattern. Why? Why should we do that? Because our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just limited to 1 Corinthians 15. It's not just limited to Romans Paul goes through this in all of his epistles. Look in Colossians chapter 3. Try to show you something very similar. Watch what he says. Colossians 3 verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Okay? In a spiritual sense, you are risen with Christ. So your responsibility is to seek the things which are above. Verse 2, more instruction. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Now, we could argue about whether or not you're doing that. And when I say we could argue, you could argue with yourself on whether or not you're doing that at all or doing it to the measure that you're supposed to be doing it. Here's why you should set your affection on things above. Verse 3, for you're dead and your life is hid with God. Now, watch what he does. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear 
then shall ye also appear with him in glory. See what Paul does? He takes this thing that's going to take place in the future and he says, well, here's what happened at Calvary. You trusted Christ. Here's what happened. Here's what's going to happen in the future. Verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then he gives a list. The admonition to a holy life is what happened and what's going to happen. Look in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and look in verse 18. A big verse. I mean, few words, but it's a big verse, a big statement. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Anybody want comfort? Okay, well, here it is. Where's it at? Well, it's verse, I mean, it's the whole chapter, it's the whole book. But specifically what he's talking about, verse 13, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. goes on to describe the rapture. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Look in Titus, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11. Now, Titus, the book of Titus is obviously written to a young minister, and uh, Paul is given instruction on how to guide and direct the churches where Titus was left. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, it's down in Crete. And so Paul gives him instruction on how to direct those churches, but also how to direct his own life. And then Titus 2, verse 11, for the grace of God, that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. And that is not a period. It's a semicolon. It's connected to the next verse. And the connection is the motivation for you to live the way that he just described in verse 12. Here's the motivation looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of, our, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now watch what he also does, what he also throws in there. Verse 14, this is the same Savior who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Now, I've given this illustration in the past uh, but I think this is a fitting place to give it again. Whenever you cut grass or whenever you till a garden, I remember specifically when my dad was trying to show me how to get behind that horseless plow, uh, that old tiller, it was a big one. And I, I was just a young guy, but my dad was out there on uh, just off of Mid River Road. And we just bought, dad just bought three acres out there. And it was a ground that was full of uh, stumps and all kinds of, crazy stuff. And so we was trying to plow up a place for a garden. And so we got, I think we got a hold of Pat Thrift and got some horse manure and hauled it out there. And then we had to get some, uh, we had to get out there and till it. And it's a good sized garden uh, for, for one of these uh, little guys uh, without a tractor. And so dad told me, he said, now what we've got to do is we've got to make, we want our garden straight. You don't want it looking like this. 
So he said, what you do is you get your eyes set on some object out there, in the, out there, way out there on the wood line. And he said, you keep your eyes on that. He said, if you're looking three feet in front of you where the, where the tiller is, he said, that's what causes this. He said, but if you'll put your eyes on that little thing, whatever you choose, he said, if you'll put your eyes on that thing out there, he said, it'll be straight. Got a hold of that thing, push the lever down, look out there, and lo and behold, by the time you get to the end where you're going to stop, you look back, and boy, that thing looked like somebody got out there with a chalk line and popped it, and you just followed it. What's with all this in a Christian life? You don't have your eyes set out there. Listen, I'm telling you, I, I'm trying to, really trying to give you some stability this morning. The stability is going to come from looking in two directions. Where'd you come from? And where are you going? That, that's where your stability will come from. All right? Now, give me just a couple minutes. Let's see if we can actually cover some of the text here in 1 Corinthians 15. Try and make some progress a little bit this morning. Look here in 1 Corinthians 15 and look in verse 1. Boy, we're probably just going to be able to touch on this. But I encourage you to, to, you know, take some notes. I understand everybody's not really note takers, and that's okay. But try to absorb some of this. This will be stuff that you'll need, and uh, it's really good stuff. Look here in verse 1. The Bible said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. So Paul talks about the gospel opening up. Now let me just jump a little rabbit trail, but this is intentional because you need to understand this. Paul defines his gospel, the gospel that he, he preaches. I don't want to call it his gospel. It's the gospel of Christ. But Paul defines his gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and verse 4. Look at it. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel. You understand that? It's not that Jesus heals. It's not Matthew through Revelation. Listen to me. The gospel is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? Just bear with me. The, the gospel is not the words in red. The gospel is not Genesis to Revelation. It is something very specific. When we talk about the gospel in the church age, it is what Paul says right here in 1 Corinthians 15. It is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? You say, why is that important? Well, let me not get ahead of myself. We'll look at that here in just a second. Look in Acts chapter 20. This particular gospel is labeled as something in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and look in verse 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 20, and Paul says, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Uh, there's a reason that he uses the term Greeks, but he does it often in his writings, but he's talking about Gentiles, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's your gospel. 
That's the gospel that we preach in the church age. It's repentance toward God, faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ based on the fact that Jesus Christ died for sins, was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You're probably not going to go, when you go witness to somebody, you're probably not going to uh, go describe it the way that I've just described it. But I'm giving you the theological background, and it's necessary for you to understand. Okay, now look at what he says, verse 24. He said, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That's our gospel. So this gospel that Paul preaches in 1 Corinthians 15 that he preaches throughout the entire New Testament, it's called, it's labeled the gospel of the grace of God. Now let me give you a little qualifying, couple of qualifying statements here. Grace of God has been prevalent throughout the scripture. God gets ready to drown out the whole world in the book of Genesis and here's a little man by the name of Noah. And the Bible says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? You come to the book of John. Change things a little bit. John chapter 1, it said, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Hopefully you remember reading that. Okay? What does that statement mean? Let me ask you something. The Bible says grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Does that mean truth did not show up until Jesus Christ showed up? No, the truth was in the Old Testament. It's all throughout the Old Testament. So does that mean that grace only came when Jesus Christ showed up? No, sir. How about when David committed adultery and then murdered that gal's husband to cover up from, and he didn't die? Law said he was supposed to die. We well, didn't. That's grace. Okay, so grace is in the Old Testament. But there's something specific that shows up when Jesus Christ shows up. Truth and grace. There's a specific special emphasis on truth and grace when Jesus Christ shows up. Okay? When Christ dies, he was buried, he rose again. Now there is this gospel that comes forth. And that particular gospel given to the disciples, it's a big statement, don't have time to qualify all, all of that. But it's also primarily given to Paul. That's also a big statement. Don't have time to qualify all that. But it's given to the, the apostles, given to Paul as well. And they preach this gospel of the grace of God. Now, now I asked a minute ago, I asked myself the question, why is that important? And it's important because there's not only one gospel in the scripture and all of them are legitimate gospels now before you have a cow and say you're saying that there's many ways for people to get to heaven in different ages no sir there's only one way now this will make some of my dispensationalist friends mad but I don't care because it's true there's only one way to get to heaven you say how is that the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. Throw this out there for some of you, okay? You may not be too familiar with this. Kind of pique your interest. In the Old Testament, men, when they died, when they were right with God, they didn't die and go to heaven. They died and went to a place called paradise. You can see that in the book of Ephesians. You can see that 
in, uh, that's Ephesians chapter 4, might be a couple of other places. We're running up against the clock. But the only way that those men could get out of paradise and go to heaven was that they were held in that place that's called paradise. Oh, Luke chapter 15, rich man in hell, Lazarus in paradise. They're talking to each other. Paul said that, or, or Abraham said, there's a great gulf fixed between us. Okay, so we've gone through some of that stuff. If you're not too familiar with that, I'd be glad to explain it to you, try and show you some things. But the only way that those men could get out of paradise, which is in the heart of the earth, right next to hell, or that's where it was, the only way that they could get, get out of there is that Christ had to die at Calvary. The blood of God's Lamb had to be shed. And that opened up the way for those men that were in paradise to get into the third heaven. Okay? So that's a little Bible study inside of a Bible study. Kind of distracted myself a little bit there. So, uh, oh, I know where I was going with that. Uh, not saying that men get to heaven in different ages by different means. The word gospel is taken from an old English word that says uh, it's spelled, uh, it was originally spelled G-O-O-D, good, S-P-E-L, good spell. It's a Germanic sort of word. And so they would talk about the good spell. And then through time, men begin to pronounce it erroneously, but they begin to pronounce it God spell. Good spell. It's associated with this. Good spell. Good news. Glad tidings. Good spell. Then it was, then it was associated with God spell. They began to pronounce it God spell. And then eventually, when you come down to about the 1600s, they dropped the G or the D out of it, and now it's gospel, gospel. So the word gospel really means glad tidings. Okay, now, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but if somebody told you that, hey, we just deposited $100,000 in your bank account, that's a gospel. Glad tidings, hallelujah. It's not going to put you in heaven, but boy, it's, it's like Earl Hughes said it. Uh, money can't buy happiness, but it sure does drive misery away. <laughs> uh, it's true. Uh, but anyways, it don't last for very long. Riches certainly do make themselves wings and fly away. Just as fast as they come is as fast as they go. Uh, but it's glad tidings. So let me just give you these right quick and let, let's look at some of this stuff. Uh, look in Matthew chapter 9. Grab Matthew 9 and grab Matthew 24. Matthew 9 and uh, Matthew 24. Matthew 9 and 24. All right. Matthew chapter 9 and then look in verse 35. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. <clears throat> The Bible says, and Jesus went about all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, so whatever that is, it's called the gospel of the kingdom. Now look at what it's associated with. We touched on this a little bit when we went through Daniel, but look at what it's associated with. And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Right, you see that? Okay, now Matthew chapter 10, we're not going to read it because we don't have enough time. But Matthew chapter 10, he grabs, his 12, he grabs his 12 disciples, commissions them, and sends them out as apostles. He lists them, Matthew 10, 2, and 3, and 4. And then verse 5, 
These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of who? It's Israel. So that gospel of the kingdom is associated with the nation of Israel. Now, when you go to the book of Luke, what you'll find is that he takes 70 men and he sends them out. And he does not give them the restriction that he gives his 12 apostles here in, in chapter 10. When he sends the 70 out, he says, go everywhere. Matthew chapter 10, they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. In the book of Luke, when they go out and preach to everybody, including Gentiles, he's preaching the kingdom of God. You say, well, then they're the same. They are not the same. The gospel of the kingdom of heaven relates to a literal physical king, kingdom that's coming. John the Baptist shows up and says, repent for the kingdom is at hand. What's he talking about? The kingdom of heaven. Uh, these 70 go out, repent for the kingdom, of the kingdom is at hand. That's not exactly what they said. But Christ said, go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, what's that have to do with? That's something that's not seen. It's a spiritual kingdom. He said the kingdom of God, he told the Pharisees one day, kingdom of God cometh not with observation. He said it's not meat and drink, Paul said in Romans chapter 14, I believe it is. Uh, the Lord told him the kingdom of God is within you. So those two things are different. That's a subject inside of a subject. But that's one gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. It's a legitimate gospel. If you're Israel and you're in Roman captivity and you're supposed to be the head over all the nations according to the book of Deuteronomy and you get news that, hey, you got a king that's coming, that's good news. That's glad tidings. It's a gospel. Okay, that's one of them. Then you've got the gospel of the grace of God, which we've looked at. Look at Hebrews 4. We'll look at uh, just a couple more, and then we got to close. Boy, we're right up against the clock. Look in Hebrews chapter 4, and look in verse 2. Hebrews chapter 4, and look in verse 2. Verse, Hebrews 4, verse 2. The Bible says, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith and them that heard it. Who's he talking about? Well, you get the context in Hebrews chapter 3. And what he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 3 is the children of Israel coming up to Kadesh Barnea and God telling them through the mouth of Moses, go in and conquer the land. If you'll go in and fight, God will give you the land. It'll be yours. And they didn't believe. They didn't go in because of unbelief. And so when the writer of Hebrews writes here in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 3, or, or verse 2, he says, the gospel was preached unto them, Old Testament Israel, just the same way that it's preached to us. He's still writing to Hebrews, by the way, Israelites. It's preached to them as well as it's preached to us. But he's talking about two different things. Now, Hebrews is a loaded subject, and I say two different things. That's not entirely accurate, but for sake of time, that's the best I can describe it. But the gospel that he's talking about in Hebrews 4 is not the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It's coming from one place and going into another. It's a gospel, though. All right? Look in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. So, Brother Nathan, some of this is confusing to me. Well, I can understand if you've never looked at it before. I, I fully understand. But what you should take away from this is understanding that every time when you see the word gospel, don't automatically think, oh, that's people getting saved like we get saved. Not necessarily. Romans 14 and look in verse 6. The Bible said, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Well, what's that everlasting gospel? Here's what it is. Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God. Give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the foundation and the fountains of water. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you get to heaven? Do you get to heaven by fearing God? It's a good thing to fear God. It's a right thing to fear God. But if you're a lost man or a lost woman sitting in here this morning and you fear God, that is not going to get you to heaven. You say, what gets you, what gets me to heaven? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe in that. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You've got to call on him on the basis of the death, burial, and resurrection. That's not the gospel that's preached in Revelation 14. Revelation 14 is, it's towards the end of the tribulation. Fear God. Give glory to him. And there's a reason that he preaches that. All right, now Galatians 1, and we'll close right here. This is really where I wanted to get to. Galatians chapter 1. And if you can understand what I'm going to tell you here in Galatians chapter 1, this will save you from a lot of heresy, okay? This will, this will keep some things straight in your mind and it will really help you. Galatians chapter 1 and look in verse 6. Galatians 1 verse 6. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. It's a gospel, but it's another gospel, which is not another it's not real. It's not genuine, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So he said this gospel is another gospel, but really what it is is it's a, go it's a perversion of the gospel of the grace of God. In this text, he calls it the gospel of Christ. Now, verse 8, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Well, we just looked at a passage in Revelation 14 where an angel is preaching another gospel. So what does that mean? He's not legitimate? No. He is legitimate in Revelation chapter 14. What Paul's talking about is during the duration of the church age, which is where you're at right now. Uh, many men have showed up in the church age and said, an angel spoke to me, two that come to mind. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, and uh, Muhammad, Allah's prophet, he had a 900-winged angel named Gabriel that came and appeared to him and gave him some whatever. And that's where Islam came from. But though we are an angel, Paul says, from an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. I would stay away from those two religions. That's what it says. Now, here's the thing that you want to take, take from this passage. He said, I marvel, verse 6, that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ 
unto another gospel. One of the things that you'll notice about every gospel that is preached in the church age, that it's a false gospel, is it takes, most of the time it takes works and mixes it or takes works and that is the foundation of salvation. Works will either be the foundation or it'll take uh, works and mix it with the grace of God. Paul said, you're flirting around with another gospel and it's away from the grace of Jesus Christ. So here's the thing that you want to pay attention to. I'll give you an example. Boy, we're, we're over. But Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking and he says, blessed are they that do this. Blessed are they that do that. It's, the, it's kingdom stuff. And what some liberal minister will do is he'll stand up and say, if you want to get to heaven, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And he's reading right out of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are not how you get to heaven. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is how you get into the kingdom of heaven, which is a kingdom that's here. Matthew chapter 5 is, or Matthew is kind of split up into some ways, and I tried to explain some of that from Daniel to you, but when you're dealing with Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, what you're dealing with is Jews that are living in the tribulation, that are getting ready to go into the millennial reign. And the Lord said, if you want to get into the millennial reign when the king comes, this is the way that it's got to be. Or I said, that's how you should get into the millennial reign. That Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is how things are going to be during the millennial reign. And so Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not how you get to heaven. It's how you live on earth during Christ's reign here on this earth. Well, it's works. Well, what it is is it's somebody that's taken Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that's directed towards Jews. Everybody wants to be a Jew. It's directed towards Jews on the earth. And we'll take that and we'll apply it to the church age. Well, what you've got now is you've got you another gospel. It's true over here. It's not true here. Now it's a gospel that's a perversion of the gospel of the grace of God. Now, give you this, we'll close. I've been saying that for the last 15 minutes. Every heresy that you deal with in the church age is most likely a truth that has been misapplied in the wrong place. Is it right to speak in tongues? That's true. It's not right for the church age. It is right in some other places, though. See, it's a truth. It's just misapplied in the wrong place. Amen. That'll help you out a little bit, I believe. All right, Lord, forgive us, Lord, for going over a little bit. But, Lord, we thank you, God, for a good study. Pray you'd use it in Jesus' name. Bless the morning service in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Boy, long-winded preacher. We'll take about three or four minutes and we'll get started this morning.